This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Company. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI-audio's on-air community, and everyone's invited. And now, the big man himself, Kelly McDonald. Well, folks, this is a day of definite reflection and learning. Ramya Muthan in Toronto joining me. I'm in the home studio in London, Ontario. And Ramya, we, we took a year and we can now look back after really having a day that's kicked everything off that made us start realizing some things that maybe we didn't want to realize because they were ugly, but we also realized we are stepping forward to try to make change and do things a little different going forward in our country. Um, Today, September 30th, 2022, marks the second National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, folks. This day honors the lost children and survivors of residential schools, their families, and communities throughout our program today, folks. We are going to be revisiting conversations uh, about the Indigenous community, and of course, we're going to have those wonderful conversations that we have had over the past year on our program, Rum. And very much looking forward to this because, as we know, a lot more Indigenous conversation has been on our tongues. Yes, absolutely, Kels. And that's the thing about reflection, right? We can uh, point back to, listen back to, and revisit and understand these conversations and the context behind what that means for an entire year of learning. So Yesterday, actually, the most recent conversation we had was one with Brenda Gunn, Academic and Research Director at the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, who told us more about her thoughts on the progress that we've made since the inaugural day. And there was a lot to get to in that conversation, just about um, basically doing what we're doing now, Mm -hmm. but really reflecting from a government point of view, a societal point of view here in Canada, uh, how the communities, Indigenous communities are feeling and have been feeling in what this day means and what the progress means for all of us. This summer, going back a little earlier, our freelance journalist gave us something to think about. She's also the founder of the East and West Learning Connections, Young Wang. She talked about an article that she wrote titled, My Reflection on Canada Day, an Immigrant's Perspective. And this one, Kells, was very meaningful to me um, as an immigrant myself and being a first-generation Canadian and understanding that Canada Day comes with now this mark of uh, tainted history, of tainted celebration, and understanding that, you know, we came here for the privilege and for the opportunities and blessings that we experience as immigrants now. But what does that mean for the Indigenous peoples of Canada? And where do we put them in this uh, celebration and recognition of Canada Day? So there was a lot of questions, at the least, that we had to consider. 
And, you know, I, being a person who's been in my country here all my life, I've had questions. But one of the things, Ramya, that when you listen to Young speak about it, she's able to ask the questions that can curiosity, whereas people from Canada who cannot necessarily directly relate, maybe they don't have uh, friends, relations in any way with the Indigenous community. So you feel hesitant to ask questions, sort of like people Mm. do coming up and asking what can I talk to you about your your blindness, Kelly? Um, there is a lot of hesitation there, and I felt in different communities, I myself would have those kind of things. But when we spoke to Young, it kind of made me realize it's okay. Learn, ask questions. All of us. I love when someone asks me some questions because I know they're trying to learn and understand. Right. In July. AMI content development specialist Karen McGee shared a really interesting story about a Cree woman who connected with her culture through sign language. This was a tremendous conversation. And again, one of those moments you stop and say, of course, for heaven's sakes. And it just really dawned on you. So a really interesting discussion there uh, with some great information uh, and, and, and experience shared with us. Uh, we also will listen back uh, to a few articles, some items from a collection that Billy Shackleton shared with us on The Buzz. And I think sometimes you think when we get in the buzz conversations, you know, what kinds of different things we're going to have with Bill that we really through the year have uh, had some wonderful conversations that, again, shed some light that we may not have an idea of, we may be able to relate to, but you learn and experience all the time when we talk about our Indigenous communities. The fantastic thing about the Buzz um, articles and curations of what Bill brings to us is he highlights very local initiatives, you know, whether they be uh, positive or negatively impacting communities, um, you know, people with disabilities or Indigenous peoples in the the ones that we'll be listening to today. There are such a variety of, like you said, Kels, things that we just have no clue about until he brings them to us because he goes um, scouring for these uh, wonderful stories. Recently, the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation and the Royal Canadian Mint unveiled a deeply symbolic keepsake. And the senior manager of public affairs, Alex Reeves, described this collectible medallion to mm-hmm. us. It was a wonderful description and shared a little about its creation and meaning and sentiment. On December 31st, 2021, a settlement was reached between the Canadian government and First Nations families, acknowledging the discrimination faced by First Nations children who have suffered under the child welfare system. So we're discussing the impact of the settlement with Know Your Rights contributor Danielle McLaughlin. Uh, Also a fantastic conversation. You know, with these conversations with Danielle, they really leap off the page to you, ladies and gentlemen, because we're trying to understand, also recognizing how little we do understand. So I really, really enjoyed that conversation. And 
June was National Indigenous History Month, and Imagine Native Film and Media Arts Program manager Caitlin uh, Tomaselli shared with us what audiences could expect at their annual festival. Now, I find that as as an actor and, and someone who's always been involved with theater and creativity that way, um, different facets of it, always the easiest way to teach and the easiest way for myself to soak up and learn um, when someone presents something. So we got to learn a little bit about their programming and hear as, as she was able to celebrate with us and include us in it, uh, things that were going to be happening, things that were included. Ramya, a wonderful lineup we're bringing to everybody today here on Kelly and Company. It's, it's going to be tremendous and a lot of fun. We will step aside to get this all launched off, ladies and gentlemen, coming your way as we recognize the second National Day for Truth and Reconciliation here in Canada. Please stay tuned, stick around, and enjoy the segments and the fantastic knowledge ahead. Let's get to this very valuable conversation leading up to tomorrow. So tomorrow, September 30th, 2022, and it marks the second annual Day for Truth and Reconciliation. The day honors the lost children and survivors of residential schools, their families and communities um, all around Canada in Indigenous communities. We're going to learn more about the day and the progress that we've hopefully made since the last day for Truth and Reconciliation um, with Brenda Gunn, Academic and Research Director at the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation. Brenda, thanks for coming back on Kelly and Company. Well, thank you so much for inviting me back. So... The National uh, Center for Truth and Reconciliation, there's a lot going on, first of all, with uh, everything that you were planning and um, doing for for information and for everybody out there. But how are you going about recognizing the day slash week, for that matter? Yeah, so the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation actually doesn't just celebrate and recognize National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, we actually engage in a full week of activities. Mm-hmm. And so starting on Monday, we had programming that we uh, created for school children. So this year, our programs aimed at eight, grades one all the way through grade 12 in Sejok. So we have spent the week supporting classrooms and teachers in a process of education and learning about the history and legacy of residential schools and celebrating Indigenous people's cultures and languages as they work to address some of the impacts of residential schools. Fantastic. Yeah. Brenda, can we look a little bit back because we kind of would love that opinion and, and viewpoint of it's been one year since the federal government passed the legislation to mark September 30th as the National uh, Day for uh, Truth and Reconciliation. What, if any changes, do you feel have have transpired or, or can you point to that we should be stopping and saying, yes, yes? So... 
I think one of the things that we really notice here at the National Center is that the public generally are really engaged and people want to know more. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the research projects we participate in is the Reconciliation Barometer. And the data that came out this year shows that there's been an increase in the number of Canadians who say they've heard of residential schools. And so we are seeing progress, I think, in Canadians knowing that residential schools happened. But what we still need to do work on, I think, is deepening the learning and understanding beyond just the fact that residential schools happen, but understanding how the legacy of residential schools continues to impact Indigenous peoples and Canada generally. Now, you mentioned the the actual statistics, right? When you send out the questions, what responses are you getting? Is it all measurable, Brenda? I mean, I feel like the answer is no, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You know, because the the learning is so individual. And even as you say, the, the programming that you're offering for uh, grade one to grade 12 students, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, yeah. You know, the, the way that a first grader takes in um, what the date recognizes is so different from me, a 29-year-old, who would take in what the day is right. recognizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, what we see and what we've asked through the reconciliation barometer is, you know, first, have you heard of residential school and this history at all? And so more people are saying, yes, they've heard of this. But what we still see when we ask specific questions about how much do you know about the calls to action? How much do you know about the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which was referred to as the framework for reconciliation in Canada? Mm -hmm. How much do you know about the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Calls for Justice? Unfortunately, people still say mostly very little. You know, there's not a lot of people that have that deeper knowledge. So that's why at the Centre we really work to do education for um, you know, for all age ranges. And so beyond the school program, tomorrow we're doing a broadcast where we'll uh, have survivors and performers and really provide space to for survivors to share some of their truth and also uh, to share uh, some of the cultural aspects as well. You know, it's, it's interesting because I know... Uh, as a disabled person and people coming up and asking questions, which is very rare because people feel silly. Usually it's kids who point something because they don't understand. They see a white cane or whatever and understand our our weakness in our society has always been, well, I know of it. I should know more. And the the bashfulness, the embarrassed, because now I'm being asked where we've learned that people seem to pick up things by osmosis, if if something's on and they stop and say, well, that's interesting, what is this? Or they hear it a little past the headlines is what you want them to, to, to note, but it's an interesting way of making people or helping people have opportunities like tomorrow to learn in different ways in their own way. It really does add to it, doesn't it, Brenda? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we really encourage people in Canada to attend community community events. And 
listen to survivors, hear their truth, make sure that you're getting information about Indigenous peoples in residential schools from reliable sources and from Indigenous peoples themselves. But, you know, on your point, I also want to sort of do a little plug for a survey that the NCTR is running right now to try to get a better sense of um, how people in Canada, what they know about residential schools and the history, and importantly, how do people want to learn more? Because we're thinking always about trying to expand our programming and what we are teaching and how we convey that information. So if people go to the NCTR website, nctr.ca, and follow the links through our Truth and Reconciliation Week 2022, you can see our survey and provide some of that feedback of what is a meaningful and accessible way for different people to learn more about Mm -hmm. uh, residential schools and the history and taking action towards reconciliation. Throughout the year, um, we're kind of, to, to most of it, on our own journeys of how we are uh, learning about Indigenous communities, about residential schools, about our own history. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of us may not even be necessarily sharing um, what we're learning, what the progress is for ourselves. But tomorrow, on the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, we can all take our moments um, and learnings and reflections and feel like we're all in it together. I'd say that that's a huge part of why this day is um, there, right, is, is happening. So how do you hope people and Canadians will observe the holiday? You know, uh, for me, there's sort of two aspects. One is I want to encourage people to take the opportunity to learn. Even if you know a lot about the history or you know a lot about Indigenous peoples, there's always more to learn. And so take this time on September 30th to learn, to remember the children who didn't make it home, to support communities in their grief and in their healing. But also the opportunity that a, a day set aside every year presents to us is it's that reminder. So tomorrow on September 30th, people can also make a commitment on what they want to do towards reconciliation for the next year. Make a commitment, make a plan. And then when National Day for Truth and Reconciliation 2023 comes along, you have an opportunity to stop and check in with yourself. How did your plan work out? In what ways were you successful in contributing to reconciliation in Canada? And where can you continue to support this work? I think it's it's such a wonderful opportunity we, we all have. There's so much out now that people can listen to those conversations, can go and, and, and learn about cultures, learn about experiences and things that a lot of time uh, were obviously like, my gosh, this happened and, uh, you know, we can't allow that to happen again. And then we get off doing other things. So I think it's a tremendous thing when you suggest, just think what you can do. No one's asking you to change everything overnight or be a part of, you know, huge change and do big things every day. But can you be a part of change? And just do some things that you know 
are that difference. And and a lot of time, Brenda, it, it's an attitudinal change, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, our conversation has also mentioned that none of this should be a solo journey, right? right. So as people are engaging in learning, share that information with other people, right? And so we need to make sure that this work of reconciliation does not fall to Indigenous peoples and Indigenous peoples organizations, right? Reconciliation is the work of all of Canada. And so I think, you know, having that time to um, tomorrow on National Day for Truth and Reconciliation is is that moment in time where we can come together in solidarity, where we'll see... uh, walks, we'll see gatherings of people, but then you need to use that inspiration to mm-hmm. keep you going every day of the year. Yeah, um, on the show, when we talk to um, Indigenous uh, people who are, you know, who've put out initiatives of any kind, right, whether it be business endeavors or art-based or media um, and uh, accessibility initiatives, just anything at all, there's something deeper to the understanding of the significance of that, the significance of um, and intention and depth of why we need to continue recognizing and celebrating these initiatives um, by Indigenous peoples. Because, you know, before that, before understanding any of it, you might not have even recognized that to be a special thing. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, um, Part of the learning that many Canadians have to engage in is the process of unlearning, right? Mm-hmm. And yes. so recognizing, you know, I think we're all sharing our ages now. I'm in my 40s. You know, when I think about what I learned in grade school and through mm-hmm. schools about Indigenous people and what I heard is not very accurate, right? So there's processes of unlearning and then there's also processes of just being a good ally which means making sure that you know as part of just what you do in life support a range of different people's and perspectives so make sure that you're following um you know new sources that uh, when you're learning about indigenous matters that you're learning about them from indigenous peoples as well and so just really recognizing it's important to um, as much as possible, particularly when we're talking about reconciliation, you know, spend the time and learn from Indigenous peoples, learn their stories, learn their truth, and then share those around. Absolutely. Uh, Brenda, this has been such a significant um, moment of the show for us. Thank you so much for taking the time and bringing us these insights. Thanks again for extending the invitation and and letting me share some of my thoughts and ideas with your audience. Absolutely. Of course. Brenda Gunn is the Academic and Research Director at the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, joining us to talk about the second National Day for Truth and Reconciliation falling on uh, 2022, September 30th, and how we can show our support as Canadians to um, continue our learnings.
Today for our regional content report, we're welcoming Karen McGee onto the program, AMI Content Development Specialist, covering Eastern Ontario. How are things today, McGee? What's happening? Really, really good. It's nice. I'm inside doing this, but I'm not going to lie. As soon as I'm done talking to you, I'm outside. See uh, down, to, down to the river? Eh, probably just to the port. I'm feeling a little lazy. Um, do you guys get... At this time, when do the festivals all start? Well, London's stuck with in the middle right now between the Home County Folk Festival and last weekend was uh, Sunfest, plus all these other little ones that, that are going on at the same time. It's just just phenomenal. How about your direction? So so there's 2,000 people in my town, so like we don't have a festival every weekend. But now that you mention it, this coming weekend, and I know because I'm volunteering at it to help serve some meals, um, they're doing a reenactment from the War of 1812 with the Battle of Chrysler's Farm, a mile away from my house where they're doing the reenactment. And I love that. The dogs I'm dog-sitting this weekend may not enjoy the cannon fire. No, they won't. Uh, We'll see. I think it's going to be louder than the fireworks the other night. But, yeah, no, it's wonderful. They do a great job describing it, the smells of the gunpowder, the sounds. There's a guy who talks you through what's happening. Um, When the Mohawk come in, when the Americans come in, they come in by actual old canoes. Wow. Isn't that something? They fire guns and then they they get killed and then they sit on their elbows watching the rest of the battle. It's really cute. It's really funny. So you're you're serving food to what? The participants? Um, Yeah. So the Lions Club, my husband's a Lions member and um, we will be doing, they're doing breakfast and dinner for them each day. So we're doing, helping out with some shifts. I know Jeff was over at the hall, which we're next door to the hall, getting all the salads ready and stuff. So, yeah, you know, help out. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, they... They've got a big concert weekend here too that I must I must not ignore. Tonight's nineties night. It's a, one of the big park ones. Mm-hmm. We have five days of concerts. So Ja Rule is there. Aqua is even there. Are you kidding? Uh, is that that wasn't it? Barbie Girl. Yeah. And yeah, Mr. Like, and what was the other one? Mr. Jones. I don't know. I think so. I, I think it was Mr. Jones. I was impressed. impressed. I pulled out Barbie Girl. Me too. Me too. That's for sure. Um, Come on, Kelly. Push it. That's not bad, though. You did a good job, especially since if you think about it, if I'd said to you, what songs did Aqua come out with? You would have, uh, 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 it has to just, it has to just pop out. Uh, a Cree woman is connecting with her culture through sign language. Tell us about Paula McDonald, will you? So I really love this story, in case you couldn't tell from the conversation we had about the War of 1812. You I bet. love history. I love Canadian history. I think it's fascinating. And this is, I learned something from this article um, from the CBC. If anybody has a chance, it's quite long. I'm not going to do it justice, recapping it here. Find it, read it, uh, do a search for Paula McDonald, Cree, Cree, and it should pop up. Um, So she's half Cree, and she was actually adopted by a family from Ottawa when she was young. Um, She's deaf and attended Sir James Whitney School for the Deaf in Belleville, Ontario. That's where she learned ASL. When she finished there, she went to attend the university um, at the National Technical Institute for the Deaf in Rochester, New York, just across the the, uh, the lake. Um, that's where she started to want to learn more about her Cree culture. Um, she attended a few powwows growing up, but she needed an interpreter with her. It was tricky for her to follow what was going on. Right. And when she went to Rochester, it, I'd never thought of this, right? Because it, it, you think you think interpretation, it, you think of, you know have somebody there describing it. But when you're translating from a different culture too, it, it becomes a little a little more complicated. So she found some cultural groups within the deaf community that she didn't know existed when she was at university. Um, different people using different types of sign language depending on their culture. 
Um, so she wanted to learn more about her indigenous culture as it related to her deafness. And she started to research and she found Marsha Ireland, who was a deaf elder from the United Nations um, of the Thames near, near London, Ontario. Mm-hmm. You are. So she developed her own sign language to better connect with the Oneida culture. And the two connected. And she has learned not only the sign language that I, that uh, Marsha created, but she's also found out about other existing sign languages historically used by Indigenous groups. And she's enjoyed it so much. She's actually now at Carleton University for Indigenous Studies. And she's been teaching herself plain sign language through online resources and the dictionaries. And it's tricky because there's not a lot out there to teach her. Mm. So it, it's been a, a research project, but I just find that fascinating. Well, so what Indigenous sign languages are still in Canada? So according to the article from the CBC, there were there are 70 spoken Indigenous languages in Canada, but there are just three Indigenous sign languages in use. So the Inuit sign language, Plateau sign language, and the Plain sign language, which is what Marsha's learning. Um, and those are the most widely used. You can tell they're kind of divided up by um, by areas. Um, there's about 100 fluent signers across the United States and Canada, which is not a lot. The Plains language that Paula is learning um, is traditionally used by Cree, Blackfoot, Blackfoot and Dakota. Um, and it's still sometimes used in Western Canada today. Um, but the Plains sign language wasn't originally used solely by deaf individuals, but it was a common language for people from different nations to communicate with each other. I found that incredibly fascinating and it makes sense right the indigenous people spoke different languages depending on where you were from and this was plain sign language was a way that communicate together this article has some great details that i don't really have time for or i could talk about this all day i found it really fascinating wow that really is it's incredible and it really does make you stop and think but it's one of those things that you never otherwise would have thought about because of our lack of obviously understanding it or, or being in, you know, most of us um, are, are not connected to the community at hand. So how enlightening and uh, what, a, what an opener for you. Yeah, I, uh, I actually might do a little more digging into this and see if we can uh, do some, uh, some projects with Marsha moving forward. But uh, I, I, I really, I, it just boggles my mind. I knew that, you know, French had a different sign language, but it never even occurred to me about Indigenous sign languages. It, it makes sense when you hear it, but, like, you have to go, yeah, that that makes sense. That Absolutely. would make sense. And the fact, that they, the fact that they used it as a common language really, really goes, that is so cool. Yeah, it really is. Fantastic. Yeah, not just in, as we talk about, be like us imagining, what do you mean others use Braille outside of the low vision or blind community? Um, yeah. Let's talk about, Matthew Bonin uh, has been taking on a big challenge to raise money for multiple sclerosis. What has he attempted to do? I think I talked about him earlier, uh, this spring maybe, with you guys. I can't remember if it was you guys yes. or with the show that I cannot I be mentioning. I think us. I believe us. Oh, no, no. Yes. Watch your language. <laughs> his original goal was to swim around Manitoulin Island uh, to honor the memory of his aunt, Claire Poirier, who passed away from multiple sclerosis it's a 350 kilometer swim around the island, and he had trained for it for months. He had nutritionists, he had psychologists, he had a team around him. And unfortunately, he has been into a couple of roadblocks, uh, something that would bother me, cold water. So even at this time of year, the water in that area can be super cold. We used to have a cottage up there. I know it can be super cold. We used to call it refreshing. Um, he started on July 1st, and when he did the water <laughs> temperature, you like that, eh? Refreshing? I, I do, Yes. <laughs> Um, and 
The water temperature on July 1st was between 50 and 60 degrees Fahrenheit. He used Fahrenheit in the article. I didn't have time to translate. Um, near the end of the day, where he near the end of the last day, uh, he ended up with hypothermia, and the water temperatures were around 40 degrees. So even wearing a wetsuit, that's really cold to be in for five or six hours swimming. Um, so he's kind of changed momentum. He's heading into what he's calling phase two. He's going to swim from Meldrum Bay. He started Monday morning with the hopes of making it all the way back to Little Current. Um, he expects it's going to take about nine days uh, to complete. Wow. <laughs> Being in the water that long. And I know, you know, if you if you are a swimming person, you love it, right? Something like that. But there's so much to think about as as you're doing it. That's just unbelievable. Um so tell me something, what is his goal to actually, in the way of, uh, you know, ac- accomplishing, achieving financially? So he, he wants to raise awareness, and he told CTV North that his goal is to raise $100,000 for research for MS. That's a pretty big goal. Um, you can donate, you can actually follow his journey. He's got some blogs. Um, there's the, there's a sort of interactive map where you can see where he is um, at msmanitoulinswim.com and you can find them on social media using msmanitoulinswim as well but I mean that's it, that's a long way to swim I don't know I like to swim but that's a lot I could do it on my back if I could float get me on a current I could float I'm good but, but then you need to be moving because of that temperature of the water even at this time of the year of course yeah it was never that cold at the cottage this time of year but it it, it didn't get to like you know pools early hit seven mid 70s by this time of the year even the 80s it was not that. There's so many things when you're doing a swim. I don't even want to say a swim like that, but any amount of time in the water, the things that happen to your body, um, the things you encounter. And nine days, you're going to get rain. You're going to get other things that are going to happen. And even just those moments where you're swimming along and you hit that cold patch in the water, they, excuse me, the colder patch in the water, they <laughs> must do some amazing things to your muscles. And every time you hit a warm patch, you think somebody just peed there. Well, if there's nobody, well, okay, maybe the boat that's watching you, maybe you never know the guys that are <laughs> alongside you. Okay, all right. But then again, I'm the only one around here. It wasn't me that peed. Who, who was? I'm the only one around here. You know, the yeah, exactly. Pack. What happened? What washed back? Um, yeah. But that's the whole thing. When you look at fundraising, something like this, doing something like that, that's just, it's so exciting. I, I mean, I love the, the goal. Um, and I think a lot of people hearing it or once you discover online, you know, just like the GoFundMe, so many people jump on board, right? So you never know. Yeah, yeah and you see that a lot. There's um uh I totally just blanked. I say I want to say Michael as well is um is um paddleboarding. I talked about him a couple of weeks ago, paddleboarding yeah. across all the Great Lakes. Um I'll give an update next time I'm on, hopefully. Um he's doing super well at news networks across both sides of the border are picking up on his story and his, his fundraising is going really well, but, but you need, you need promotion, right? It's just, yeah, you need you people do. to talk what's happening. So you hopefully do. the little plugs here and the CTV story will get him a little bit more cash coming his way. Have fun at the reenactment. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Looking forward to it, my friend. Our content development specialists join us Wednesdays and Fridays right here on Kelly and company. Kels, we're going to be checking in with uh, someone who's been on Kelly and Company before, Yang Wang. She's an active member of the blind and low vision community in Toronto and a little beyond as well. She uh, founded the East and West Learning Connections Group and she's lived, studied and worked in three countries. She also has a master's degree in economics. But really what she's here to join us to 
to uh, explore today is some of these unique insights she has on how disability and multiculturalism can influence each other. She shares her perspective in many different ways, including um, writing articles and having conversations uh, in and around the community in different capacities. And um, she's here to talk about um, some of the things that she's been working on lately. Young, welcome back to the show. How are you? Hello, Remya. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here and to Kelly as well. Nice to talk to you too. And um, we're going to get into something um, in a bit. But firstly, your East and West Learning Connections group held a celebration to um, recognize Indigenous communities in Canada. And this was through June because it was Indigenous History Month. So can you tell us a little bit about this event that you held and how it went? Uh, sure. So we call it the, the Turtle Island Lawn Party. <laughs> so uh, before I, I uh, yeah tell about this, can I uh, can I introduce the organization a little bit for our audience? Um, so Absolutely. they'll get an idea of what we do. So Eastern West Learning Connections is a nonprofit organization based in Toronto. Um, what we do is to help people of different heritages break cultural barriers and get connected. And we create learning, communicating, and volunteering opportunities uh, for the public. It is run by a group of volunteers, including myself. And in the past five and a half years, we have organized more than 200 cultural events for the public for free. Nice. And these... Mm. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. And uh, this Turtle Island lawn party, as you can see from the name, uh, is a celebration. Uh, we we threw in June, and uh, we got the sponsorship uh, from the Department of Canadian Heritage. So it is our ever first uh, government grant. Um, what we do, uh, we brought this celebration into the neighborhood, so where. Uh, East and West Learning Connections uh, is located. Um, some uh, neighbors uh, join as volunteers and four neighbors open their front yard <laughs> to do a history hunt. And uh, we invited some excellent indigenous uh, performers and artists come over and they did uh, prayer, singing, dancing, drumming, storytelling, and uh, oh, we also had an Inuit artist, a jewelry designer, oh, wow. uh, set up a booth, yeah, to uh, display her art works and uh, uh, those uh, uh, seal skin jewelry products. So they're so beautiful and unique, and people love it. And um, uh, people got to talk to each other, you know, um, uh, in the blue under the blue sky because it's a long party. It's in a big backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, they got to know each other more. So everybody learned something and they really enjoyed it. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's always really yeah. fantastic when people are able to experience something they haven't, especially something culturally, because it's so different to them right and and mm-hmm. different but yet we we from our different cultures our different backgrounds no matter what 
we have things we can relate, but it's wonderful when you get to learn, you get to experience something from, from someone else. I'm sure that was some of the great feedback you guys had. Yes, um, we yes we learned we learned uh, some stories um, and we learned like strawberries are very important fruits in indigenous culture. We learned like some um, vocabularies like navy as water. Uh, I learned like language, uh, thank you, or onion as hello, um, and, and their uh, story like medicines. Um, also, as an organizer, I ha- had gone through some learning curve, and uh, you know sometimes it-, it could be challenging, but I learned a lot. Wow, that's um, cool so, too. Yeah. And and again, some of that is just on what to do, the right things, the appropriate things, isn't it? it, it because we don't we don't know, and and that's that's the same with dealing with anything from any culture. There are things that we, hey, oh no, no, you don't do that, or oh no, that's that's great, that's the way it it's done, and you know, trying to understand or learning is really something. Um, I want to move to the piece that that you wrote. This is really interesting. And I think says a lot and, again, is just total testament to what's going on, what you're doing, and kind of where you are and where you're thinking. So in July 2021, you wrote an article, uh, and, of course, it was entitled My Reflection on Canada Day, an Immigrant's Perspective. So first, let's start with what was your reason for writing it and sharing it out there with people? Yeah, because at the time, you know, the unmarked graveyards, of those indigenous children uh, were found, it was so shocking and heartbreaking. And, um, and uh, you know, that was the time when, uh, you know, I came to Canada in 2010. So mm-hmm. uh, until the pandemic hit, I think I had experienced the 10 best years, maybe, in Canada's history. At the time, the society was, um, I thought it was really open-minded and people really try to embrace this idea of diversity, equality, and inclusion. Right. And then the pandemic hit. I, I saw the rise of uh, anti-Asian racism. And then this, uh, you know, this graveyards uh, were found. And what, what was happening uh, to our South and in the world was nothing, you know, comforting at all either. So it's like um, we are running into a world of chaos. And I think it's really the time for everybody to sit down, uh, to reflect, reflect, and um, think about what values we, we really want to embrace and what, as individuals, we can do uh, to help us take out of this difficult situation. Yeah. And I think to share thoughts and communicate with each other is a small thing we can do. And part of that communication, you know, like the the um, lawn party that you held and then going back basically two years before that when you wrote this article, it, it asks a lot of questions. So this article, um, in the beginning, you went through like you you kind of painted a picture for us right you painted the context of what was going on um and you got into the the problems the challenges and you separate europeans 
in Canada, uh, sorry, separate Europeans from indigenous communities in Canada. And then you also specify saying that you're neither. You're an Asian immigrant um, and Asian uh, heritage. And why, like my question to you is, why was it important for you to clarify that um, in the bigger context of things for yourself? Because I think this status gives me sort of uh, the freedom to look at things from a third party's angle. Um, so I do not have baggages uh, in this issue, I mean. Um, I do not have the baggage of uh, cultural arrogance to think other races, you know, people of color um, as in, inferior uh, to me. Right, mm. and I also do not have the baggage of some white people uh, of this sense of thing, original thing, that so much that they do not dare to share their thoughts. Uh, frankly, uh, have, like ask some questions on their mind, and um, uh, to give maybe constructive suggestions as to how to fix the problem together. So, so I think I sort of have that freedom to look at all this <laughs> and speak frankly and, and uh, from my you know, experience. And, and mm. also to me as an Asian immigrant, I do not have this baggage, but I, if I do not you know, um, strive to study the history then I have a problem of no baggage as well. Mm, yeah. <laughs> because say, right. yeah, because I remember I asked um, a, a group of my friends, uh, book club friends, so most of them are white people. Um, I once asked them that it was um, years ago. Uh, so why, like this indigenous uh, community, like the issue is such a big issue in Canada. So I like all this, like drugs, um, um, this, you know, um, crimes, um, and, and people, you know, cried out a lot. Uh, I said, okay, as an immigrant, I, uh, I, I know a lot of first generation immigrants um, came here. You know, they had to start from scratch, and, and they mm -hmm. don't have any like a privilege, like they don't have any uh, favorable. Uh, policies uh, to help them, but they they work very hard uh, and they establish themselves quite well. So why why indigenous community cannot do this uh, even with with you know some policy, history you yeah. know help of policies yeah. But um, uh, at the time I did not know about the history truly, so I did not study in detail. Um, so I could not, um, I could not, then I, like, only after I read some uh, books about their history, then I knew how big baggage they're carrying. And mm. it is really difficult for people to come out of that. Um, it's a long way in this time. Uh, then, so then I, I became more understanding. Yeah. 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 It, it, and again, it's a knowledge. It's so much of, I know myself growing up here, 
not knowing so many things. And there are so many things that you mentioned in the piece that are very interesting to think about on that aspect or kind of us pushing them off and just laughing everything off because Canada is such a great place to live and we are in so many ways, but we do need to remember. I just want to quickly ask you, since 2021, and we don't have a lot of time, how have you felt and how has your learning on Indigenous families and what's going on, how have you, you felt that since you wrote this, it changes for you? Well, well, I, I feel like uh, the world is still in chaos. <laughs> so really, um, <laughs> yeah. people, yeah. Um, so people really need to work together, um, um, like all color matters, and uh, people with different perspectives work together uh, to to um, help with this uh, reconciliation uh, process. Um, and I really uh, think from my own experience, we need to learn. Uh, like I, I didn't know about the, 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 how horrible uh, they have experienced things um, after I read this uh, uh, couple of novels, um, Five, Indian, Five Little Indians by Michelle right. Good uh, and uh, Indian Horse. Uh, by Richard Wagnese. So they're fabulous uh, novels. And uh, you know what? Uh, the Indian uh, horse was made into film in 2015. And uh, the, the Hollywood star, uh, Clint Eastwood, when he was presented the, uh, with this film, he was shocking. He was shocked and said, what? You Canadians did this? And how come mm. nobody knows about this? So, so, and that's kind yeah, of the realization really, that's that mm-hmm. so many of us yeah. are going through young. At the moment, we're like, wow, we've lived here for some of us for generations and not even realized how um, horrific the history is of the, the original people of this mm-hmm. land. Young, we're going to have to pause mm-hmm. it there um, and hopefully we can continue some of these incredible conversations next month with you. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us. For sure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to an AMI Audio Mini Bite. Host Amy Amanti speaks with artists about their inspirations, adaptations, and the barriers they face. Amy's guest, Kevin Morris, reads one of his poems called Time, which he wrote using Braille and screen reader technology. Tell us what this first poem is we're going we're gonna to listen to. This first poem's called Time, and it came to me because I've got an old ting tang clock which sits on the bookcase in my living room. Time, the reaper moves in time with the pendulum. No rush or fuss, he has plenty of time. My patient friend, whose clock portends my inevitable end. You rest in state on my bookcase. Tick-tock, I cannot stop. Time scythe, none can survive his cut, though in a cupboard my clock be shut. Death cannot be put aside, the sickle chops and the heart will one day stop. That was a clip from Amy Amanti's Accessing Art with Amy podcast, featuring guest Kevin Morris. To listen to the full episode, download Accessing Art with Amy on your favorite podcast platform, or go to ami.ca forward slash listen and visit Accessing Art with Amy's show page. This has been an AMI Audio Mini Bite. I'm Grace Scofield. 
I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Climate change is complex, and the UN's most recent climate report is thousands of pages long. So reading and understanding the science can seem overwhelming. But a French organization has found a way to help people learn the main points in just three hours by playing a collaborative game. It's for all ages, all kinds of groups. That's Sheila Suarez de Flores, a facilitator and co-coordinator for Climate Fresk USA. Climate Fresk is a group workshop built around a card game. The cards represent and summarize concepts like agriculture, CO2, rising temperatures, and climate refugees. The facilitator helps players understand the concepts and asks them to explain what they've learned in their own words. Working together, players arrange the cards to show cause and effect. Often the game is played on a sheet of paper and players draw arrows and diagrams. And at the end, players make their game board into art. They decorate it and they move from the head to the heart and talk about their emotions and what they learned. So far, almost half a million people have played, either in person or online. There's quite a bit of a group bonding experience, cathartic experience. It's all about creating a safe space for these climate conversations that we know are so important. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. Thank you for being with us, ladies and gentlemen. Ramya Muth and Kelly McDonald, as we begin Hour 2 of the program, welcome back to the best of Kelly and Company. Today, September 30th, 2022, marks the second National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. The day honors the lost children and survivors of residential schools, their families, and communities. On the show today, we have been revisiting conversations with and about the Indigenous community from the past year. Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays here on Kelly & Company, we're joined by producer Bill Shackleton. Right now, we listen back to a collection of Indigenous stories he shared with us this year on The Buzz. Now, we like radio on this show, so the Sound of Home Indigenous radio station celebrates 50 years of programming. So this is started in northern Manitoba. Um, A group of people decided that because mainstream media basically has basically ignored uh, the needs of the of, of indigenous people they created um native communications inc and it has grown over the last it started in the 1970s and basically it is a cultural radio station that is geared toward um native people they have a mic. They have they broadcast, I believe, in Cree, and they 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 broadcast in, in uh, different languages, and it's really filling the gap um, where mainstream media has, you know, left these people behind. So it's when you tune into this radio station, you feel like basically you feel like home. You feel comfortable. You feel like it's in your own language. And basically, it started out in the north because they had to communicate with the um, the fishermen and the trappers, and because of the you know the remoteness, um, so it just graduated from there, got bigger and bigger and bigger. And we did a we did an article about a radio station, I think, in the east coast that that really 
had a, celebrated a milestone. And this, 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 I'm glad to see this is still going. Well, it sounds really nice, and it's in many different uh, indigenous languages. That's that's very cool. So uh, I guess there must be a fair bit of music as well, is there? I I just um, tried to tune in, but it was it was country and western. I couldn't get it to play, but um, I'm going to explore it. But it's it's news. They feature things going on in in the indigenous communities, and you know, basically where you wouldn't hear anywhere else. They talk about bingo. They they talk about everyday things like um, who won the bingo game and, and, and things like this. And apparently it's very difficult. Getting on one of their talk shows hmm. is like winning the lottery. Like it's, it's apparently it takes years for some people to get on. So yeah. which which goes to show how popular it is. That sounds kind of cool. So you, it's kind of like getting on Oprah or something. I I, I guess so. But st- but still a lot of community vibe. Uh, but I, it seems like it's all community, except I don't know about the music. All of it is. I think it might be some of it might be indigenous. Some of it may not be. But it's certainly geared to the community. Okay. What else, Billy? Um. Um, this is an interesting one too. Indigenous meeting, meeting, um, the, meeting the Pope urge Vatican to return artifact collections. The, the recently there was an exhibition in Rome in the Vatican Museum, and there were delegates from around the world that were called to examines an, an, an exhibition with with in Inuit artifacts. Now, apparently, the sad story here is that there were artifacts taken from people who went to residential schools from around, well, basically from around the world. And some of these artifacts were sold. Some of the art, some of the artifacts were donated. The Pope, the Pope of the day called for any artifacts um, to be uh, basically sent to Rome, the ones that they thought were interesting. So these artifacts are at an exhibition, and these delegates feel that these artifacts belong into your, to your communities, which, of course, they do, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but the problem is that the, these, a lot of them were given to the Pope of the day as gifts, so you're going to be interesting to see how the church responds to that, because if they were given to a pope, um, are they going to say that they, they belong to the church because they were given to a pope? Or um, the delegates are saying if the church believes in truth and reconciliation, they should give these artifacts back. And a lot of them are from Canada, from Canadian artists. I think that, um, you know, going back to when we really started to dig into the the historical, like, let's say, you know, cancel Canada Day around that time, right? When we really started to understand the implications of Indigenous communities um, having their place 
in our history and our present and our future. And we knew that this was going to stir the pot in so many different ways. Uh, we weren't just going to get away with certain things, you know. And like the more you dig, the more you find out and the more you find out, the more uncomfortable you get. And it's just like that. And it's going to have to kind of unfortunately, but kind of, yeah, of course, um, be be happening over and over again until things are settled, until mm. people feel like they're actually being heard. And yeah, these artifacts, the the uh, um, what do you call like their their dress, like the traditional dress, yeah, they, they are, wear, they the are regalia, regalia. Yep. Yeah, yeah, the regalia, all of this stuff. At one point, might have meant something completely different, but now looking back at it, it's not that message. And, and, and you know, some so of it we need may to talk have about definitely it. been. Um, given for whatever reason, I, I, I tend to feel, and, and I think we're going to hear more about the fact that the, these items were just requested um, and brought there. And I think at a different time, this might not have been such a, a problem, but with so much stuff that we're seeing, the apology that's being requested, the, the sole feeling of, uh, of the harm that's been done, the trying to stamp out um, the, the culture, the, the you know the indigenous culture uh, of the time back when you know you think what what do you mean gifts and why would gifts be sent you know you took them and I think that that's where people are going to struggle and the Vatican's going to have to decide at this point what is that right thing to do at this point not way back when because. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Were they given or pillaged? And, and when I say that, I mean, yeah, send us something. Well, that doesn't matter. Just send us some things. We would like them. And and I, I, I don't know. The sad thing about for me is they were stolen. A lot of, a lot of these yeah. artifacts were stolen. They were mm-hmm. stolen. They weren't uh, voluntarily given away. They were stolen by the government just... and by, you know, yeah. By a government exactly. that at that time did not want... Indigenous people. There's no to acknowledgement. Have, that's right. Yeah. Have their heritage, no their history, their current life. Which lives. is ridiculous if you ask me, because we were trying to assimilate all these people and then yet we were stealing from their community. Like this is just nah, whatever. That's where it makes um, no sense to you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or there there's things that are ironic about it, to put it that way. Let's move on to this one. Free digital communications program launched for indigenous learners. This is from an uh, Alberta Native News published in the Canadian press. So essentially, there's a program launched to help Indigenous learners um, get experience in the workforce. The course is basically three modules. Module one will teach you communication skill, uh, basically creative writing and help, um, you know, develop a resume. The second module is going to teach you digital design, design and marketing, um, the which is very highly in demand because they want these people to get a job in you know in fields where it's where there, there's a demand. The third module, which is important too, is it will put these native people. Um, I believe you have to be between eighteen and. 40 or 35, yeah. but it will teach them. It, it will put them with a company that recognizes truth and reconciliation. And I think basically what that means is that these companies recognize the fact that a lot of times indigenous people are discriminated against in the workforce. So this, these companies are 
going to give these people a free shot and it, it's going to make them feel easier knowing that they are, that these companies are, um, you know, going to take truth and reconciliation into account and that they will give these people a free shot and give them a chance. Right. And um, the employer's part is really, really important because this is showing the collaboration, the tactile um, ways that people are saying, and this is how we want to be involved in this next part of community building and understanding and empathy and uh, just just reaching out a hand to say, okay, we care. Like we care about what's going on with the Indigenous community. Also, the bigger picture of this is obviously very important. Um, we hear about these kind of specialized programs for a lot of different parts of our community. And uh, it, it is like to cater it specifically to people in Indigenous communities is just, I think, going to be very valuable because people are coming from um, a lot of historical perspectives that we might not be aware of at all. So to say, okay, you know, teach us while we teach you these programs is um, like, it, it's a very genuine approach, right? Yeah, and and they're, they're teaching them stories they're teaching them and and like it's, it works both ways yeah it does so this course is going to it's by telling stories apparently and 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 they are understanding native ways mm-hmm. and and how they basically do things yeah but still you know prioritizing um employment yeah. and uh, like knowledge of digital access and all of these different programs uh, yeah, it is. It is quite good, and this is happening in Alberta, which I think is a nice place to start yeah, um, with all of this. And hopefully, it'll expand further. Billy or you know other people will pick up this kind of momentum um, because it is important. Just the same way we say, like for people with disabilities, having uh, accessible content specifically catered, right? Because we can't just pop into a a digital workshop and say, "Okay, yeah, my needs are being met." I think there are a lot of parallels with that and this. I, I oh, de- very definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really nice it, when you look at the fact the target two of the employers who already are you know really in of of taking on reconciliation and being serious about it, so that the work and yeah. the, the environment that uh, these people when they move along get into is at least more welcoming, um, more understanding. I, I want to just say that, that recognizing faults that, that, that we've had, th- um, things that have to be corrected, and that's how they're moving forward. The National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation and the Royal Canadian Mint have unveiled a deeply symbolic keepsake, and we want to know exactly what this keepsake is and what the significance is behind it. So Alex Reeves, Senior Manager of Public Affairs at Royal Canadian Mint, joins us now for all the details. Alex, thank you for making some time for Kelly and Company. Well, thanks for inviting me. Really looking forward to uh, discussing exactly what this keepsake is. So can we start off with a bit of a description, you know, for Kelly and I who are... Uh, um, very excited to know what it looks like. What is what is it? For sure. Uh, I'll start with what it isn't, actually. Okay. Uh, that might help. Uh, it's not a coin. So uh, 
Let's All right. Can, uh, there's um, there's no uh, there's no effigy of the queen on one side and a design on the other, or a denomination or anything like that. It's really uh, what we would technically call a medallion. Um, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's meant to be uh, commemorative, but it doesn't work as a coin or currency. Uh, so we have uh, complete liberty to design both sides with. Uh, the imagery that we choose, and uh, uh, this keepsake is, is definitely rich in imagery on, on both sides. Uh, if I can start, yeah, we would love a description of the imagery. Um, just one more follow up is how big is the medallion? Uh, it's about the same width as a two dollar circulation coin, okay. so it's it's quite it's quite sizable. It's bigger than like an ordinary pin, let's say. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's it's a nice size and it's uh, it's prominent and shows well uh, and it's wearable also the uh, uh, it has a steel core so it's magnetic and we sell it with a magnet uh, so that you can you can uh, you can stick it on uh, your clothing or a cap or something like that and uh, and show whichever side you prefer so it's uh, it's wearable and versatile. Okay. So. So there are two sides to this thing. Um, I'll start with the simplest one, um, and it's um, it's actually uh, the colored side of the coin. Uh, there is a uh, central image um, uh, of a kind of an array of orange hands uh, uh, organized like the rays of of the sun, essentially, and inside is the um, is the uh, the everlasting flame logo of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation? Uh, so the hands symbolize the uh, the sun and its life giving energy. Uh, on top of that image in the center is inscribed "Every Child Matters," "Chacun Fait Compte," so bilingual. And those legends and the designer are surrounded by uh, by footprints of. Uh, uh, of children and adults, and uh, it represents uh, it represents the uh, uh, people walking with their ancestors. So mm-hmm. the an- ancestral connection is is very important, and the continuum, the continuity of of the generations. So that is one side, and on the other, we have a collaboration between three different artists, and it's the first time we've done this. Give uh, Giving the the canvas of uh, of uh, one side of a coin to three different artists to uh, uh, to create a a combined design. And the purpose of that was to make sure that uh, the identity of First Nations, uh, the Inuit, and the Métis Nation were represented equally on the coin. Uh, all all of those uh, communities have been affected by the. The residential day and boarding school experience—they uh, live with that legacy still, and it's an opportunity for them, an opportunity for them to to illustrate uh, in their own voice uh, what uh, what what their communities represent in in this context. Wow. I can wow. go into the description of each one of these. It's a bit lengthy, but I can do it if you'd like. Well, before we get to the the uh, specifics on this, I do want to ask you the 
you know, the significant, because it seems like there's so much that went into it, you know, the imagery, um, the sentiment, the collaboration, the messaging, uh, you know, down to not just the, the visuals, but down to like everyone who was involved in putting this together. So can you talk a little bit about that as well? Just why it's important that it was done this way through these collaborations? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think the simple answer uh, to that is is um, is to act out of respect uh, for the communities, um, and we uh, we had had a desire to do something uh, that would benefit um, uh, Indigenous communities in the context of uh, of of the uh, of the sort of the orange. Shirt Day, Every Child Matters, uh, and Truth and Reconciliation as a whole. How can we, you know, how could the Mint be involved in that? And, and we do have, you know, a, a unique role by by producing coins and uh, and things like medals and medallions uh, that no one else uh, has the ability to do in Canada, certainly right. not within government. And um, uh, so we decided to leverage that and um, and create something that could be sold uh, at retail. It's, it's very reasonably priced at nine ninety five, and uh, all the net proceeds from the sale of each keepsake goes to um, uh, the Nami uh, Kinemuk uh, Community Foundation uh, of the uh, National Center for Truth and Reconciliation to support. Uh, commemoration projects uh, and knowledge sharing and, and uh, preserving the memory of the experience. So, so we we had this idea, but there there was no way that we were going to to set out and say this is how we're going to do it and and set off in our own direction without consulting the yeah, very for sure. communities that are re- represented here. Uh, it's it's not our story; it's their story. Yeah, and so, how did you guys do was, that to decide on with the artists and and those conversations, Alex? Yeah, well, we we called up the uh, the National Center for for Truth and Reconciliation and uh, and told them what we wanted to do, and uh, we also said we wanted to hear from the survivors themselves and to hear what their experiences uh, were like and how they would like to see. Uh, the subject uh, depicted uh, and communicated. So, so we worked in, in close collaboration with the National Center uh, uh, for uh, for Truth and Reconciliation, and and what's called the sur- their Survivors Circle. And um, uh, it was a really eye-opening journey for us. Uh, very moving um, and and extremely uh, revealing. And uh, it allowed us to to just hear what they had to say. We we're just there to listen, and and they appreciated that. And uh, we're we're very glad that we took the correct approach. In hindsight, <laughs> that was always our intent. Uh, and then we worked with them to select some artists, uh, some of which we'd worked with before. Uh, Jason Sikwak, who uh, who uh, took care of the Inuit component of the design, had done a, a coin for us a few years ago. And uh, and they came up with some some very uh, very moving uh, evocative designs on the coin. But you know we worked with 
uh, with those stakeholders and artists, not just to, to create a medallion, but to tell the story. Uh, uh, the, the medallion is, is packaged in a folder uh, that talks about uh, the, the residential school experience. Uh, that uh, points even uh, people to uh, the residential school's crisis hotline uh, on the back of it. Um, so all of the content that you find either in the packaging or on the Mint's website was all done in close collaboration with the National uh, Center for Truth and Reconciliation and the, and the Survivor's Circle. So we walked this path together, uh, every inch of it, and... Uh, and we're uh, we're very pleased that we were able to to uh, to come out with you know to end up with a with a finished product within within a year. Uh, we were we were prepared to work to their timetable, give them the time they needed to to work everything out and to uh, to share their uh, their feedback. And uh, we're we're thrilled that we're able to get uh, get this done uh, in in under one year, and, and here we are just before National Truth and Reconciliation Day mm-hmm. with this uh, this beautiful keepsake that will that can you know Canadians can wear as a sign of support or inspire others to find out more wow. about reconciliation the, the residential school experience. What an incredible medallion, Alex! How do we get our hands on it, please? Well, the Mint uh, is selling it directly uh, online and at its boutiques. Um, there is a handy URL uh, that is specific to this product. It's www.mint.ca slash capital T, capital R, and that will bring you directly to the, uh, the product page. Uh, dealers, coin dealers around the country will also uh, carry some, and uh, participating Canada Post outlets also uh, have, uh, have the keepsake. Oh boy, that's great. Good luck, Alex, with it. And I love the, well, we love what you guys have done in in talking to everyone and getting the viewpoints and expressing it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we appreciate the feedback. Thank you very much. Alex Reeves is the Senior Manager of Public Affairs at the Royal Canadian Mint, talking to us about the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation and the Royal Canadian Mint's symbolic keepsake. So on Mondays, we like to talk a little rights with Danielle McLaughlin. We call this segment, Know Your Rights. Let's examine questions that can't be answered by a simple yes or no. Join me, Danielle McLaughlin, when we talk about how freedoms collide on Know Your Rights. You are hosting with me today, Danielle, but we thought we'd um, get into some real interesting conversation here and some updates, actually, because on December 31st, there was a very important settlement between the Canadian government and First Nations families. Um, This is to acknowledge the discrimination faced by First Nations children who have suffered under the child welfare system. So do you want to tell us a little bit about this, Uh, maybe get into some background? For sure, Ramya. Um, You know, for anyone who's been following this, this has been going on, this particular case, for a shockingly long time. Um, To kind of make it succinct, there there have been a number of problems. One has been that um, in order for many First Nations families to get access to the medical care that their children need, they have had to give their children up 
um, to the system so that they couldn't keep them home and get the medical care because it wasn't available in their communities. And there was a, a fight basically, that was going on between provinces and the federal government. Now, you might know that the uh, the welfare of, of Indigenous peoples, First Nations peoples, uh, Inuit people, um, is considered to be a federal issue. In other words, schools, for example, are paid for out of the, the federal purse. Um, and health care normally is a provincial uh, issue, as is education, normally a provincial issue. But if you happen to be a person who is uh, uh, lives on a reserve, if you're a First Nations person, it's expected that the federal government will pick up the tab uh, instead of the province. Well, of course, because healthcare is a provincial issue um, in general, people go to provincial hospitals. So who's supposed to pay for that? Well, we've seen a situation in which children have been caught in the middle where families have had to give up their children in order to get them the kind of care that they've needed. It's been a horrible situation. Even worse than that situation is the fact that um, the infighting between the federal and provincial governments has caused an issue where nobody was paying for the needs of um, these special needs children in most cases. Well, December the 31st, after many court battles back and forth, the federal government decided that they would stop fighting it in court. They have been going up against First Nations uh, Child and Family Caring Society of Canada for many years saying, no, we're not going to do what the previous court ordered. We're not going to do what the previous court ordered. Finally, they decided not to take this to court once more, and they have come down with a $40 billion settlement, $40 billion to be divided in half. Half of that amount is to go to the families who have been so terribly impacted by this issue, the other half to reform the the child welfare system so that... um, this won't continue to happen. Uh, it's it's been it's been something of a disaster that has had a deep and profound effect on families and particularly on children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no, absolutely. And there's, um, I don't know if it, discrepancy is really the word, but you know, like you're saying, between federal and and provincial, and who takes it, and uh, passing the buck, and all these things. So now with the settlement. Is it still considered in the works? Well, yes, it is actually because this this is uh, you know it's on paper. Um, it has not actually been. It's not a binding agreement at this point. Okay. Um, the, every expectation is that it will become a binding agreement. But because um, the 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 uh, um, First Nations Child and Family Caring Society has had to fight this in court again and again and again. I don't think they believe it's final until they actually see the cash. It's of you know it, it, yeah. it's it's quite worrying. And Cindy Blackstock, who who leads that organization, you know, is very glad that this decision has been brought about, but she's still holding her breath a bit, you know, to, yeah. to see what's going to happen. Um, the child, uh, the the um, First Nations Child and Family uh, Caring Services 
established something called Jordan's Principle. I don't know if you right. Ever we heard talked of- a bit about it here on the show before with you, I think, yes, as well. That's yes, right. Okay. And what this principle basically says is when there is a dispute about who's going to pay for a child's needs, um, whoever is first on it pays the whole thing, and then they can fight later after the child has got the care that she or he needs. And this mm-hmm. uh, came about um, because of a child. Uh, this, is, this in, in my view, is one of the, the saddest stories. There, there was a, a little boy um, named Jordan River Anderson, and he was born in um, 1999 to a family at uh, Norway House Cree Nation. Uh, and he was born with serious uh, medical uh, needs. And there were no uh, appropriate services on his reserve. And so the family had to surrender him to the provincial care in order for him to get the medical treatment that he needed. So after he spent his first two years of life in the hospital, he could have gone into care at a specialized foster home close to the medical facilities in Winnipeg. Uh, However, for the next two years, two more years, when you think about the life of a small child, Aboriginal Mm -hmm. Affairs and Northern Development Canada, Health Canada and the province of Manitoba argued over who should pay for Jordan's foster home costs And so Jordan remained in hospital and they were still arguing about it when Jordan died at the age of five, having spent his entire life living in the hospital. So the principle, which is named for, for this unfortunate child, it says, you know, child's needs first. Worry about who pays for it later. You can take it to court. You can, you know, you can fight all you want so long as the child's been cared for and and has received his needs. Um, You know, in my opinion, this is a tragedy that did not need to happen. You know, this this child could have been living in a supportive family-like situation. He could have have thrived, uh, you know, in in foster care. Um, Or even perhaps, we don't know, back with his, his biological family, he got none of that uh, given to him. There was no opportunity. So, you know, th- this, th- when people say, you know, the mistreatment of Indigenous peoples, mm-hmm. you know, was a long time ago, it wasn't a long time ago. It really it's wasn't. Now. And we're still arguing about the same things, Danielle, and asking the same questions, um, whether it was 10 years ago, 100 years ago or now. Like, why does the government seem to act so slowly, even when the the risks are so great as as a in a hospitalized hospitalized child um, looking for some some care and and facility and support? um, And yet. You know, it takes his death for us to even implement something like this and even understand it moving forward from that point. Well, that's right. And and quite honestly, even his death didn't do it because there have been numbers exactly. of memoranda of understanding based on Jordan's principles. And yet the government has gone in gone to court to oppose payments again and again. So in addition to the 2009 federal response, there have been memoranda in um, 2018 between the federal government and the province of Alberta and 11 First Nations. And in 2020, there was another memorandum signed between Canada and the Southern Chiefs Organization 
in Manitoba. The, the thing about, you know, all of this going back and forth and back and forth through the courts is Canada is a signatory to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and on the Rights mm-hmm. of the Child as well. So, you know, why have they spent so much time and money fighting against this decision and other movements, um, you know, following many of the truth and reconciliation calls to action? It's It, it right. makes so little sense. It kind of reminds me, I'm, I'm sure many of, many of our audience members have heard from David Lepofsky, who yep. tried for so long to get the TTC, the Toronto Transit Commission, to simply have announcements made so that uh, people with low vision or blindness would know how wh- which stops were, were being reached and they would know where to get off, and also to have them up uh, in print for people who were deaf or, or hard of hearing. The government took him to court again and again. There was a human rights decision that said, yes, have to do it, reasonable accommodation. The province mm-hmm. said no. You know, by the time that it, they, it finally happened, the government had spent so much money fighting it through courts, they could have paid to having to, you know, to have done to get the project done over yeah. and over. Right. And the same thing with Jordan's principle. If they hadn't bothered to fight, if they just said, this is the right thing to do. Let's do it. They would have spent so little money in the courts and with lawyers and with all of the argy bargy that, you know, even possibly Jordan himself might might have benefited from it. But he's not the only child who has been put in in such a terrible situation by uh, the way in which the the governments have uh, looked at indigenous children's welfare. And so, you know, having this um, human rights tribunal decision, uh, you know, finally acknowledged and the decision said straight out, this is discriminatory. This is an act yeah. of discrimination. And Canada, you know, with, without using the word ashamed, I think basically they said the same. They, they you know, here is what um, Patty Hyde, you said. She said, for too long, the government of Canada did not adequately fund or support the wellness of First Nations families and children. Um, And she said no compensation amount can make up for the trauma people have experienced. But these agreements in principle acknowledge to survivors and their families the harm and pain caused by the discrimination. And there's that word discrimination in funding and services. And I think that this is really important that the government, first of all, acknowledge that they have been discriminating against these families, that, you know, they have caused poverty, they have caused trauma, they have caused pain, um, you know, when it would have been so much, let's face it, less expensive to provide the shelter, the education, the medical Mm -hmm. care, the food that these people need. So, you know, if 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 they had not been indigenous families the the norm the the other provincial child welfare systems would have covered this in a flash right. so you can see that the, that because these are first nations families and children they they really got the, the you know the least care that they possibly could mm-hmm. and i i you know i i remember hearing about this years ago and wondering 
How can the government keep going to court over this? It's shocking. And now, you know, after the uh, National Day of Truth and Reconciliation and after all the call to action um, points, uh, recommendations and and everything else that there, the plea, right, from Truth and Reconciliation Canada uh, coming out, it's still... It drives me crazy that we're we're dragging our feet on everything still. I mean, it's like we're still uh, the government is still wondering why why we need to yeah. make these changes, why we need to uh, make some decisions and quickly um, because people's lives are at stake. And you know what? At this point, like you're saying, with uh, some of the representat- representatives who are keeping their fingers crossed, holding their breath about whether this settlement is actually going to go through, is because there's just so much uh, distrust in in our country um, and in the government. And just that, you know, you saying that this stuff is going to be taken care of is just not enough anymore. Why aren't we moving forward fast enough? Oh, for heaven's sake. And, you know, one of the things Cindy Blackstock said, and I I tend to agree with her, she said that the federal government is a repeat offender against First Nations children. You know, if you look if you look at it that way and you say, you know, we really, you know, not only are, are, are people supposed to be getting benefits, they need to be protected from the government that is taking mm-hmm. away children and then not treating them equitably. So my hope and that's pretty much all it is at this point, is that that this will hurt enough that people will say, you know, we shouldn't be having to pay out $40 billion to people. We should be, you know, giving them the services they need directly up front, just the way we give it to every other child. So, you know, I, I, I am very hopeful that, um, you know, after all these memoranda of understanding, um, you know, the one of the reasons there've been so many is, is that, the federal government needs to have a memorandum of understanding with each province and territory. So, you know, but hopefully they, they, they will all be in accord and they will all acknowledge Jordan's principle and make sure that none of the children will be left in the lurch, that we won't allow this to happen again in any way. So again, it's an interim step. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interim step, but we're very hopeful that this will be the end of a, a particularly ugly period in Canadian history. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and moving uh, from these, uh, you know, in a very tactile way towards some kind of actual positive relationship with our First Nations communities uh, means that we can move towards something a little better. You know, it's let us just, all hope so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. Thanks, Danielle, for bringing it to us and um, not just updating us, but giving us the deep dive into what the settlement uh, process is thus far. Thanks, Ramia. The imaginative um, arts, or sorry, Film Plus Media Arts Festival announced its programming for National Indigenous History Month, and this is during June of 2022. So we want to talk about what we can expect with the programming manager, Caitlin Tomaselli, who's here right now on Kelly and Company to give us the scoop. Caitlin, thank you for coming on the show. And we love catching up with um, Imaginative. Well, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. And there's a lot of great programming coming on uh, through Imaginative. So before I begin, like, of course, like, happy National Indigenous History 
so much to celebrate. <laughs> Thank you. I totally agree. And we'll get into a lot of it. But for anyone who's just hearing about the festival, um, before we get into the programming, can we start with some background on the festival itself and the significance around A, having it at all and B, having it around this time? For sure. Yeah. Well, Imagine Native is the world's largest presenter of Indigenous green content. And we've been around for going on to 23 years and we're recognized locally, nationally and internationally for excellence and innovation in programming, but also as the global center for Indigenous media arts. You know, we're, we're committed to inspiring and connecting communities um, through original storytelling from Indigenous film and media arts. Um, but we also do a lot of outside activities outside of our festival, like such as the tour. Um, we do professional development labs through our institute programming. Um, a lot of year-round initiatives that showcase and promote Indigenous artists and storytellers. And, um, you know, we are at a scope of not just Canada, but internationally. So it's really important to be able to understand this greater scope of culture and artistic expressions. Wow. I love the the whole aspect of not only educating people in the sense of, hey, these are the stories being told. These are some of the things we can we can learn, enjoy, um, uh, and and really embrace in in culture and just so many different things out there we should know about all of us out there. But mostly when you get into the workshops, the different things to broaden the skills and knowledge base of of the artists is so important. Can we get to the programming um, every Friday? Let's start there. You're releasing award winning films. Uh, can can you touch a little bit on this for us? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, we put a pretty great lineup for our Feature Friday. So, so Feature Friday is where every Friday Imaginative will invite all y'all to sit back with your families and enjoy Disney-made cinema. Um, so we stream it through our online watch platform, so you can find that on our website. Um, this week, we are currently presenting Angry Enough by Alicia Arnakuk Abarel. And then next week, we'll move into Mothers of the Land by Elevera and Diego Ciamenta. And then our third week will be Boy by Taika Waititi, the Academy Award winner director. Um, and then we'll be closing out the month with a retrospective screening of the Imaginative Originals uh, film curation. So those are through films that we created in our labs. Wow, very, this very is- nice. It's fantastic, and especially because every Friday there's that thing to look forward to, right? The um, the film itself and why it was picked, the background behind it. That's awesome. Yeah, and a big thing, too, is, like, making them as accessible as possible. So, you know, we mm-hmm. are able to move online still, and that's a, a, a form that we are looking to keep in our adoption of presenting media nice. to audiences. Yeah, that, cool. I think that's really important. We've had many conversations about is is that something that we're going to see stay? I'm also curious the the films. So many of these award winners, but a lot of the content I think most of us have to understand is worldwide, isn't it? Yeah, worldwide, and you know, it's just an opportunity to well, it's an honor and a, and a privilege basically to like be able to celebrate indigenous filmmakers from a worldwide sense of uh, of work and you know brilliance and excellence that comes through that yeah okay so this one is really exciting for me uh every sunday it's flow so what is flow and how does it work yeah so flow is a a special commissioning project um where so we have six artists coming together um and they are each creating their own piece of audio so that audio can be anywhere from uh, a podcast, experimental, um, a narrative storytelling, um, 
you know, it could be an environmental based sound wave scope of things. Um, but really what we are doing from Slow and the idea is that, you know, we're able to connect distant listeners through bodies of water, through sonic storytelling. And we are bringing together artists such as like Casey Coison, Laura Ortman, Mark Schlissing Roseback, uh, Pamela Palmeter, Suzanne Marset, and Tom McLeod. So, you know, it's really exciting. And we've been working with these artists for the past few months. Um, and now we're presenting them in June. Like next week um, or this Sunday, we'll be having um, Suzanne Morset and Casey Coison. So that'll be a really beautiful scope. And what we found through this is that there's a lot of conversations around you know, like around, I feel like mother and child relationships. So I thought it was really interesting to think about um, through this through this project and how that came um, through the conversations that we had as just planning process. Um, but yeah, so we're really excited to present that. Wow, that sounds really amazing. Well, and, and of course, I, I love anything that has to do with you start a book, whether it's conversation, sound, the ideas people have to bring forward this kind of, original thought out this is important to me kind of content um and this is how i see something now at the end of the month you have land jam what can we expect with this so land jam is very special to us you know this is our second year running it and this is where it's like a hackathon basically so we have indigenous creatives who sign up online we create teams and we'll have an intensive five days where these teams will create games so it'll be Mm. like a crash game creation um events and yeah so it's like our very own indigenous game jam and they're really exciting um their original works created from scratch and they'll be presented at our imaginative arcade during our festival in 2022 wow wow so so we're Thank talking you. some real development and and uh digital content there exactly yeah full rounded you know we're talking about di- a digital interactive so video games we're talking about audio and we're talking about films <laughs> And what was um, what made it feel very special? Like you know, you said that this one's really special for you, and uh, it's been a couple of years in. So, what is there something that keeps it going um, to that degree? Yeah, well, what it is is like it's us building this um, this I guess this art, art form within our communities. You know, people, media artists are there, and now it's giving that opportunity to give them space and be able to present it in, in the way that they should be presented, but also um, access to other artists who are interested in the work that they can do, where they can create collaborations, uh, friendships, partnerships. So like, this is a way that we can, you know, make sure we are providing that space. Okay, that's amazing. It's definitely about that access for um, for artists, for participants, for organizers, everyone, right? It's really coming in together as a community to keep something like this going. So Cineplex, you're partnering with them. Can you explain what that entails uh, overall throughout the festival? Yeah, so for June, we'll be having um, two films. So Portrait to a Fire by Trevor Mack and Kayak Klemtu by Zoe Hopkins. And those will be in theaters. Um, right now, we have Kayak Klemtu till the... June 9th, um, and then we'll go into Portraits from a Fire um, from the 16th to the 24th, I believe it is. Um, but then we will also have this beautiful collection on the Cineplex store, and that is where um, people can, you know, we, we curated this, this program, but people can go to the Cineplex store and view a bunch of amazing, incredible works from Indigenous artists, um, filmmakers, and 
uh, just feel the joy from home or in theater. So there's like that nice balance again. Wow. <laughs> um, and then the films themselves that will be in theater, uh, those will be in selected theaters across Canada. So about 20 um, theaters, you'll be able to see the films and then they'll be replaying again on the 21st for National Indigenous Peoples Day. And there is a list on again on our website that really breaks everything down, so people can gain more access and um, insight of what we are presenting and what dates and when to check it out. So, you know, keep an eye. <laughs> Great, Kaylin, that's a tremendous partnership. Uh, anything else in closing that you want to touch on that you're excited about? We should know. Well, I guess like one thing about uh, to Cineplex too is just like to further support like this initiative. Um, Cineplex Entertainment actually. Um, is, you know, when you view a uh, Cineplex theater on June 21st, for every um, every dollar that's being purchased there, and they'll be dedicating that to Imagine Natives, so that's really exciting. Um, but other than that, I would just say, you know, keep an eye out on our social media, on our website, because we are going to be having more exciting updates for our festival, which is October 18th to the 30th where the first week we'll be moving in person completely in Toronto at the Tiff Bell Lightbox and surrounding venues around that area, but also a online portion the week afterwards, we'll be packaging everything on demand for those who can't make it out. Okay, amazing. And give us the website before you go so people can check you out. Yeah, so imaginenative.org. And then if you use hashtags at all, hashtag imaginative. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Caitlin. All the best. I really hope that the attendance is uh, incredible because you guys have put together so much for this year. Um, and, and there's a lot to recognize and a lot to celebrate in this country this way. So thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be able to have this opportunity to talk about all the programs that we have and all the beautiful artists that are being presented throughout this, this beautiful month. Us too. Take care and all the best. We were speaking with programming manager Caitlin Tomaselli uh, to talk about the Imaginative Media Plus Arts Festival that's taking place right now, the month of June 2022, um, for Indigenous Heritage and History Month. It's a really, really great thing to check out. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.